Thank you, friends. That's very nice of you to be welcoming me. And uh, thank you for the privilege of sharing God's word with you this day. Uh, as I mentioned previously, I know it's very difficult for you in this uh, part of the English-speaking world to cope with speak, listening to a sermon uh, preached by someone who doesn't have an accent. Uh, it's a, a real difficult. As you go around America, there are so many regional accents, but as I travel around every now and then I meet someone who hasn't got an accent and they're always Australian. So I know the language is pure when I'm speaking it and it's just not something that you're used to, but try really hard and you may get the hang of it. Uh, if I've, uh, there are also some Australianisms that I fall into every now and then and if you look mystified when I do it, I'll try and explain it as it goes through. I was uh, very glad as I walked in through the entrance of the children's thing, there's an Australian hanging over your door and Nemo is there uh, welcoming us, <coughs> which made me feel really well. And I won't mention the gentleman's toilets, but then there, there's a koala something or other where you put your babies, um, which evidently shows you know nothing about koalas. Um, however, that, that's all right. I'm glad you have us with us and remember us kindly in the men's toilets. Don't know why he's there, but never mind. Now, there's a well-known proverb that uh, Jesus said, that a prophet has no honour in his own hometown. Uh, hands up those who have heard this proverb. Good, we're all in business. Okay, who can tell me where they'll find it in the Bible? Well, you all heard it, so where is it? You're right, it's in one of the Gospels. That's really clever, isn't it, if it's Jesus? John, got a chapter? But did Mark got a chapter, verse number? You lot to learn your memory verses with chapters and verse numbers, haven't you? Okay, this is a problem because if we don't know where it comes from, we might know the context of it, which is the case, isn't it? It's in several of the Gospels, if I don't look, but the one I'm looking at is John chapter 4. So open your Bibles there. We're going to have a look at John chapter 4. I'm going to kind of read the Bible backwards this time a little bit, you'll see. John chapter 4. So we can work out the context of this because it's actually slightly strange. The context of John 4, of course, is the woman at the well, the Samaritan, a well-known event in the lives of Jesus. But towards the end of the event, if you look there at chapter 4, verse 39, 439, many Samaritans from that town believed him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the saviour of the world. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honour in his own hometown. There it is, you see. Chapter 4, verse 44 of the Gospel of John. And notice, he's been away in another country, effectively, the Samaritans, the long-term enemies of the Jews, half-Jews they were, but the enemies of the Jews. He'd been away with them where he was greatly honoured. Now he's coming home to Galilee, where it is his own hometown. But when he came, verse 45... To Galilee, 
the Galileans welcomed him. Now that's a problem, isn't it? He's just said, a prophet has no honour in his hometown. He goes to his hometown and they reject him. They won't have anything to do with him. They throw stones at him, but that's not what's said. They welcomed him. It's the exact reverse of what would flow from verse 44, which you see in verse 45. You'd expect they did not welcome him, but they did welcome him. See the problem? It's worse than that. So let me try and help you make it worse first. Because verse 45 actually is connected to 44 with the word so, or therefore. Because a prophet has no honour in his hometown, therefore, when he came to Galilee, they welcomed him. Now, that really doesn't make sense, does it? Now, when the Bible doesn't make sense, you know that actually you have a problem. Because the Bible always makes sense, you're the one that doesn't make sense. Right? So, that's the first good news. If you reach the stage that I don't understand this, there's some hope that you might learn. If you think you know it before you actually read it, and then you're sure you know it after you've read it, you haven't learned anything yet. But now that you can see you don't understand it, we may together grow in our understanding. So hang on with me here as we try and work out why it is, if a prophet has no honour in his hometown, Jesus is welcomed in his hometown. Why is it so? Well... The answer lies in reading the whole verse. So let me give you the whole verse. So, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he'd done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. Didn't help you much, did it? You're still none the wiser as to why it is. You see, the answer still doesn't make sense because... They welcomed him because they'd seen his works in Jerusalem at the feast. Well, that makes sense. But how come that means that the prophet is without honour in his own hometown? It all steams back to front. But at least verse 45 gives us a clue. Just a little clue, but a clue as to how we can unravel this problem we have. Because... It all has to do with Jerusalem during the feast. They were at the feast in Jerusalem when they saw it. Jerusalem some distance from Galilee. Galilee is in the north. Then there's Samaria south of it. And then there's Judea with Jerusalem south of that. That's why he was in Samaria, because you have to go through Samaria to get from Galilee to Jerusalem, you see. And they were down in Jerusalem up up in Jerusalem because Jerusalem's in the heights, but up in Jerusalem because it's the the capital, you go up to the capital. They're up there in Jerusalem, south of Galilee, when they saw what he did there. And that's why they welcomed him in Galilee. Well, we better go back to see what he did in Jerusalem, hadn't we? So turn back to chapter 2, because in chapter 2 and verse 13, chapter 2 and verse 13, we see about the feast in Jerusalem. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. There it is. There's the feast in the Passover. 
And in the feast in the Passover, notice verse 18, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And a key part of what this whole section about is the signs that Jesus did. For that's what they saw, the Galileans saw, in Jerusalem at the feast. And the Jewish leaders asked for a sign. But let's put that sign into its context. Because when he went up to Jerusalem in the temple, verse 14, in the temple he found those who were selling oxen, sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables and he told those who stood, sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. See, when he arrived in Jerusalem, he saw the terrible abuse of the temple, which symbolised the very house of God. Here were the money changers, the sellers of animals, uh, and the money changers themselves. Why? Why were they there? Well, because all Jews had to go up to Passover time sometime in Jerusalem. That was what was required of them. And when they went there, they had to offer up a, an animal, if they were poor, just pigeons, but they had to offer up something, and they had to give money to the temple. Well, it was a, a great inconvenience to carry an animal from Greece or from Alexandria or somewhere all the way to Jerusalem. It was much easier to buy it when, it got, when you got there. You know that kind of tourist thing, don't you? you it's, it's easier. You just can't pack an animal in your bag as, quite as easily as buying it when you get there. And the money had to be changed because... The Roman money was idolatrous. It had little idols and statues. So the temple couldn't accept Roman money. So there were money changers so that you could give your offertory in temple money. And so there were money changers there and there were animal sellers there. But of course the temple authorities got sick of the fact that everyone was making money out of the temple. So they brought the temple, they brought the money changers and the animal sellers into the temple itself. The temple was a, a huge area of open court, several football fields big. And there were thousands of people gathered around into the temple courts at this time. And there they were, buying and selling and making their, their, their money out of them because religious tourism is still a great money maker. The people around the temple had therefore forgotten the purpose of God's house. It was to be a house of prayer for all nations. It was the place where symbolically God met man and man met God. It wasn't a marketplace for greedy people to become rich. So Jesus acts with force and vigour as he removes the offensive temple trade and traders, saying, verse 16, as you see there, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. The reason, Jesus said, it was understood by the disciples later, but the reason really was the zeal for his, your house will consume me. It's a quote from Psalm 69, verse 9. It's, a, it's about the Messiah, Psalm 69. And later on, the disciples remembered this and remembered that psalm which explained what he was doing because his motivation, his concern was for the house of God. It consumed him. It also consumed him because out of his devotion to the house of God, he was ultimately consumed in death. 
The enemies of the psalm are seen here in Jerusalem, the Jews, verse 18. For they said, well, what's the sign by which you do these things? It was a request for him to justify his actions, to justify himself, to some kind of show some supernatural miracle that would give him the right and authority to interfere with their trade. They didn't see that their trade, the temple trade, was so wrong, they just saw it was wrong to interfere with it. Who was this Jesus to take such high-handed actions? And so we read in verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews said it's taken us 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word Jesus had spoken. So they asked for this sign and he gives them a sign, but it's not a sign like they're expecting. It's a sign that he tells them about. It's not that he does straight away. Destroy this temple, I'll raise it in three days. Well, of course they didn't understand it. What, what on earth was he talking about? destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. Even the disciples didn't understand what he was talking about. It was only after his resurrection, you see there in verse 22, after he was raised from the dead, that they then understood. And their failure to understand is seen in the Jews' unbelief of verse 20, 21. You know, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? It took longer still. The temple wasn't fully built at the time of Jesus. It started in 19 BC. That's how we know the date of Jesus because this kind of accidental reference to when the temple started and how long it had been going took 46 years, took another 27 or so years afterwards. It took quite some time. I oh, know, I haven't done the maths right there. It was finished in 64. Uh, what's that? Never mind. It was finished in 64. It only lasted six years, then the Romans destroyed it in 70 AD, and the only bit left is one little bit of wall called the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem today. It was a massive enterprise, huge, huge temple, which Jesus is saying, destroy it and I'll do it in three days. They thought this was a ridiculous idea. The sheer size, the magnitude of this endeavour made Jesus' three-day claims actually seem absurd. But that's because they had forgotten what the temple was that they were building. They had forgotten the purpose of the temple and the nature of the temple. They didn't understand that the place where God meets man is in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. That in his resurrection from the dead, he would take us into the heavenly temple, into the heavenly sanctuary, where we would live in the city of God where you don't need a temple because God is there and we are there with God. He is our God and we are his people. They didn't understand anything of the death and resurrection of Jesus. It was only after the event that the disciples believed it even. Verse 22, you see. And it wasn't simply the resurrection. It was Jesus' words that they believed and the scriptures that they came to believe. When Jesus rose from the dead, they went back into their scriptures about the Messiah. And there's Psalm 69. Your, my, your house, I will be consumed with zeal for your house. And they remembered, yes, he was consumed with zeal for the house. And so they read what Psalm 69 is about and the enemies attacking. And they made sense of Jesus 
and his events. They came, look at the verse 22, remembered that he had said this and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Because a sign has no meaning without the words. It's really important to grasp this because we've all been taught uh, 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 a picture's worth a thousand words. And you know that's not true, don't you? Because every time you go to an art gallery anywhere in the world, there are these fabulous paintings and underneath every one of them there's a little explanation. Because you don't know what the picture means without the explanation, especially if it's modern art. You've got not the foggiest clue what it means. You're not even sure it hasn't been hung upside down sometimes. But the little explanation at the bottom tells you what it means. You always need it. I was, I was in Tokyo Airport for some time, four hours or so, waiting for planes. It was a dreadful time. I noticed that there were several earth tremors while I was there. But the Japanese just walked around as if it wasn't happening, whereas the tourists were all panicking. I was in the panicking category. Anyway, there was this box over against the wall, and in this box there was, there was this kind of uh, tulipy flower kind of there, and there were two heads looking in at this tulipy flower. And every now and then the flower would open up like this, and when the flower opened up, then the face of the person looking at it would also open. And you said, big eyes and big mouth, and then after a while, the flower would shrink again and the face would shrink down as well. And then after a little while, it would happen again. And it would happen. Now, I don't read Japanese, so I couldn't read the little sign underneath. So I spent half an hour, an hour, looking at this carefully, watching it. And at the end of this, I still didn't have the foggiest clue what it was about. I still, to this day, it was 20 years ago, and if anybody here knows what it's about, I'd love you to come and tell me later on. Because that picture wasn't worth anything. <laughs> In the previous, this morning I said earlier, it wasn't worth a bumper. Then I had to explain what a bumper was. It's a cricket term, but there's another use of it. I mean, that's useless, isn't it? A cricket term, that's wiped you all out immediately. <laughs> but actually, a bumper is also an old-fashioned English, uh, Australian term for the little cigarette butt that you throw away on the ground and that the hobo comes and picks up and lights again, right? That's a bumper. Uh, a picture, that picture, wasn't worth a bumper. It's a good word, isn't it? Bumper. You can have that word. Right? You forget everything I say about the word of God, but you go home saying, well, I don't know what a bumper is. And I may say, a cricket bumper's got nothing to do with that either. You haven't learned anything yet. Uh, I'm getting into deeper water here. I know. Let's get back to the Bible, shall I? The picture, the sign, doesn't matter. What the sign signifies is what matters. You see a young man going around with a Oxford University, uh, uh, what do you call um, hoodie or sweatshirt, right? On. What does it mean, Oxford University with a crest? It means he has an auntie who was a tourist in Oxford last year and bought it for his Christmas. That's what it means, isn't it? It could mean that he's a student at, more, at Oxford University, but if so... He doesn't study there because he's an undergraduate student and they don't study. The ones who really study are the nerds and they don't wear those kinds of shirts. <laughs> the sign doesn't matter. It's what it signifies is what matters, you see. That's the important part. Now, all this introduces the sign believers. The sign believers in verse 23. 
Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. See, these are sign believers. When they saw the signs, they believed. And these signs are what the Galileans saw in chapter 4. They're amongst these people, you see. In the feast, people from everywhere, including Galilee up in the north, come down to Jerusalem. They see the signs that Jesus is doing and they believe in him. This is going to help us in chapter 4. We're going to get back to chapter 4 sometime, hopefully. And they're the believers. Now, you would have thought verse 23 then records for you the success of Jesus' ministry. Many believed in Jesus. Surely this is what he wanted, for people to believe in him and in his name and have eternal life. And it was many who sided with him, for they saw his works, his signs, his miracles that he was doing, and they were persuaded. But look at verse 24, because there's another shock and a trick there. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. That's slightly surprising. They believe in him. He doesn't believe in them. And the word believe is the same word, actually. Entrust really is the word for believe. It doesn't work in English, though. Just translating from one language to another, you can't always just line the words up. They're not mathematical symbols. Uh, it doesn't make sense. He didn't believe himself in them. And so we change it to he didn't entrust himself to them, which is perfectly appropriate because the word believe means to trust. And in fact, it would have been helpful if we'd put trust in the previous verse. Let me read it then that way. Verse 23, many trusted in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not trust himself to them. That, that's what lies the Greek behind the English there. It's not that hard to understand. He wouldn't trust them. Why? Why wouldn't Jesus trust these people? We're told because, end of verse, middle of verse 24, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. What is it that Jesus knew about us? I mean, he knew we were sinners. Out of the heart of man comes all manner of sinfulness. But it was more than that. He knew that this belief in him, this belief in him because of signs, this belief in the signs, this miracle belief, is not genuine belief. To believe in Jesus because of miracles is not to believe in Jesus. The people who believe because they see signs and wonders are not the true believers in the word of God or the scriptures or the Son. And this introduces us to one such man, Nicodemus, the man who believed in Jesus because of signs. Now, chapter divisions, headings and all those kinds of things are wonderful helps to our reading, but sometimes they get in the way. The Bible wasn't written in chapters, it wasn't written with headings, it wasn't written like this. And so the ESV that we're working off here has a new heading, you must be born again, and a new chapter and a new paragraph all divided up, which is a great shame because that gets all in the way. Let me read it to you without the chapter headings, without the break. Are you ready? 
Verse 25. He needed no one to bear witness about man because he knew himself what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. See, we've just been told Jesus doesn't trust people who believe in signs and now a person who believes in signs comes to Jesus. A Pharisee, a leader of the Israelites, a leader of the Jews, uh, an important man in his own community. But he comes believing in Jesus because of signs, so we shouldn't trust him. For Jesus didn't trust him. And indeed, before he gets to ask his question, Jesus gives him an answer. Always seems kind of a bit rude, doesn't it? But if you'd read the lack of trust that Jesus had in miracle believers, you'd understand why he cuts right across Nicodemus. And he gives him his answer before he even asks the question. He says, you'll see it there, Truly, truly, verse 3, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Spiritual rebirth, not simply believing in miracles, spiritual rebirth is what is required for those who would fellowship with God in his kingdom. And that theme runs through this little paragraph. Verse 3, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 5, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 7, you must be born again. Verse 9, so it is everyone who is born of the spirit. Here's the problem for Israel. Its own teachers, leaders, rulers like Nicodemus, don't know what to look for when they're looking for the coming of the Messiah. His own teachers weren't listening to the word of God. Did you listen to the word of God this morning? It was read to us beautifully from Ezekiel 36, 37. <laughs> because that's the passage, preeminently passage, which tells you what to expect when the Messiah turns up. There'll be a washing away of sins by the water, purified the nation, but the pouring out of the Spirit of God will bring new birth. If we'd read on into chapter 37, we would have come to the valley of dry bones, the nation dead and now being brought to life again by the word of God that the Spirit of God puts in the mouth of the prophet. And then would come the king, King David, David's greater son who would rule over the kingdom of God. The coming of the Messiah, the coming of the kingdom of God requires the rebirth of the nation, the regeneration of the individuals, the outpouring of the Spirit, Jesus is only telling Nicodemus what the Old Testament says. But Nicodemus, a teacher in Israel, didn't know about spiritual rebirth. He just knew about miracles, party tricks, really exciting things, wow factor things, you know, enormously astonishing things. I believe it's astonishing. Isn't that marvellous? I believe. It's the word of God that you must believe. So Jesus says in verse 11, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak what we know. Bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. I've told you earthly things and you do not believe. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus doesn't come to do miracles. He comes to speak the word of God. If you do not believe the word of God then your belief in miracles is an irrelevance. 
for it's the regeneration of the Spirit that enables you to hear God's Word. There are other signs, you see. You look back there in chapter 2. And the first sign that Jesus does in Cana is recorded for us in chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Do you feel like you're hitting backwards in this Bible study we're working on at the moment? You know, your pastor, he starts at the top of the text and works forward, doesn't he? He's a normal, sensible person, but I come from down under. We do it backwards, right? The, there he is. You know the events, don't you, about the turning of the water into the wine? But do you see? It's called the first sign, verse 11. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. What was a sign of? See, you can look at that picture in the airport and say, what does it mean? You can look at water being changed into wine and say, what does it mean? Well, you're told what it means in verse 6. Now, there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20, 30 gallons. Mary said, do what he says to do, and that was the water that was changed. The waters of Jewish legal purification were turned into the spirit of new life. That's what the sign was about. It was signifying his grace. Because back in chapter 1, we're still heading backwards, we're going to reach Luke's gospel soon. Back in chapter 1, we beheld his glory, verse 14, the glory of the Father from the Son, full of grace and truth. Moses came, but Jesus came with grace upon grace. The Jewish law of purification, you had to wash and wash and wash and wash because you were never clean. But with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, you were transformed from within by the regeneration of the Spirit. It was the sign of his grace that happened. But the ones in chapter 4, now we go back to chapter 4, you see the Galileans, they accepted him because they saw the signs at the feast. Verse 45 of chapter 4. They were the false believers. The miracle believers, the, the people who looked at the signs and went, wow, 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 but didn't see what the signs signified. They missed it completely. And in case you missed the point, you're given another example of it in verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he'd made the water wine. Just in case you had forgotten, right? The water wine, Cana. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judah in Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. I know what kind of man you are. You're one of those believers who believes in signs. You're a miracle believer. You're not one of the true believers. I think this man was a father. He was too desperate to have a theological discussion with Jesus, because he just says... The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. You know, there comes a point when you don't actually want to discuss anything. You just want help, and that's what he's asked for. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. Now look at this next bit. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. 
As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked the hour when they began to get better and they said, yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him and the father knew that this, that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live and he humbled himself. He, he himself believed and all his household. And this now was the second sign that Jesus did when he'd come from Judea to Galilee. It's believing the word of Jesus not seeing the miracles that is the sign of being born again by the Spirit of God. So let me talk about signs in our own times. Because today, we still have exactly the same issues. They're still around us. We have both kinds of problems. The temple worship and the miracle believers. They're both alive and well in planet Earth and in America and Australia, around everywhere. For whenever people leave off believing in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the word of God, they turn to either the temple worship or to miracles, and sometimes to both. You see, I was in St Paul's Cathedral in London as a tourist. It's a brilliant building. It's, it's, it's huge, it's enormous, it's very clever, built just after the, uh, the Great Fire of London. Uh, a, a magnificent, grand piece of... But when you go in, as a tourist, you go through revolving doors. The big, great door, that's only opened up when the Queen or somebody like that turns up when Australian convicts don't... Right. We, we go in the revolving doors there. And the revolving doors are made of glass... And etched into the glass is a text from the scriptures. What text would you etch into the doorway? It comes from Genesis 28, 17. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate to heaven. It's not. I've checked out that building and I sure hope the chairs are much more comfortable in heaven than those chairs and I want the building brilliant as that building is I want the building in heaven to be a lot better than that and anyway when you get to heaven there is no temple because heaven is the temple and that's not true and when you go inside the house of God which they call it blasphemously there are the money changers selling tea towels and mugs and all kinds of other things what do you do under such circumstances? I went up to another brilliant building, another little temple up in Cambridge called King's College Chapel, which is one of the most superb, ex beautiful expressions of human architecture, built under the time of Henry VIII when he was still in love with Anne Boleyn, and so their initials are carved into the wood there, Anne Boleyn and Henry VIII, which tells you something, doesn't it, in itself. But there you go into this brilliant building, you see, and I went in with my family. My family hates travelling with me. Um, they wish they didn't. They've all left home now. I can understand. And in we go. Beautiful building. Big sign. This is the house of God. Please keep silent. Say your prayers. This, do not disturb other people. This is a place to be, a holy place in which you must be meeting with God. Right next to the big sign, there's the money changers. They're selling records of King's College Chapel choir singing Christmas services and they're selling tea towels, 
why do so many tourists need tea towels? I don't know, but they were selling tea towels and pictures and, and, and bric-a-brac of all kinds of religious nonsense, you know, crosses and, and crucifixes, all that kind of nonsense stuff, which Artemis would make a lot of money today out of Christianity, but that's another story. Anyway, there they were. Now I've got a choice. I'm a Christian man, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've got a choice. If I'm going to follow Jesus and believe the sign then I should drive the money changers out of the building, shouldn't I? There's an option. Or the other option is to say, no, no, the sign's wrong. This is not at the temple of God. This is not the house of God. This is just a rain shelter, which in England you need. Uh, this is a rain shelter. You know, this is a snow shade. This is a, well, you don't need a sunshade in England, but it, it's that kind of thing, you see? Now, once I accept that it's that, then the sign which says it's the house of God and I've got to shut up is wrong. Because there are all these people tiptoeing around, being all holy, when they don't understand the gospel. So what I should be doing is explaining it in full voice, shouldn't I? So I've got a choice. Whips, crowd, throw them out, preach the gospel. Do you see why my family doesn't like travelling with me? <laughs> they stand further and further away from me as Dad goes full voice explaining the gospel to everybody I can find in King's College Chapel until I'm asked to leave. At that point, my family, a long way down the road. But you can't have it both ways. If it is the house of God, then you shouldn't have the money changers. Because it's not the house of God. Our sanctuary is not a building. Our high priest has offered up the one perfect sacrifice to the Father on the altar in the heavenly sanctuary, read the epistle of the Hebrews, that's what it's all about. It's never to be repeated, it can't be repeated, it was once for all time on the cross of Calvary. Our priest, our sacrifice, our altar, our temple are all in heaven. They are never here on earth. This lovely building that you have here is a building, it's not the house of God. This lovely building is a rain shelter, a snow shade, this lovely building is a sunshade, but it's, it, it's a building. But the temple of God is heaven or is your heart. Make your choice. It's both and. But it's not here in this building. That's not what it is. It never can be. But when you lose being born again by the Spirit of God, when you lose the gospel, when you lose the sense that you come to God through the death and resurrection of Jesus, you'll go and build a temple, won't you? So as to meet up with God somewhere and start practicing sacrifices and crossing yourself and bowing and lighting candles and doing all that kind of stuff that can give you the holy feeling again because you don't have the God who gives rebirth or you'll turn to miracles and you'll find then there's no shortage of people who want to give you miracles that signify absolutely nothing but wonder and amazement that is confused with faith Today there's no shortage of miracle workers, they seem to live particularly in American television stations and they're peddling the name of Jesus in terms of miracles that they proclaim, offering you healing and offering you wealth and prosperity and offering you all kinds of manner of extraordinary things like slaying in the spirit and the rest. They're offering you all these miracles instead of listening to the word of God. Instead of trusting in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection for you, instead of trusting the gospel, Spurgeon told a wonderful story that always stuck with me. Mr Spurgeon says, say one day I'm walking out from the pulpit down the aisle of the church and halfway down there an angel appears to me. 
What would I say? What would you say if an angel turned up to you? He said, I'd say, be gone. I don't want to hear from you. Is that what you would have said? And then the angel says, but Mr. Spurgeon, I've got a message for you. He says, I don't want to hear. Please don't tell me. Is that what you would have said? And the angel says, but I really must tell you. And Mr. Spurgeon says, I really wish you wouldn't. If you must do, you must do what you must do. But frankly, I'd prefer you not to. And then the angel gives him the message. Mr. Spurgeon, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Now what would you say? Spurgeon says, be gone, you wretch. (laughs) Up until now, I had my faith in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the gospel, and you're tempting me to put my faith in an angel's word. Old Spurgeon was right, wasn't he? (laughs) But doesn't it speak to your heart? Because wouldn't you like the angel to come and whisper in your ear and say, actually, I've seen you, I've seen the book of life and your name's in? But my brothers and sisters in Christ, you have your name written in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) You have your name in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why trust an angel when you have the Lord Jesus? writing your name in his blood why put your faith in something less than what you already have don't you trust the word of Jesus don't you trust the gospel don't you trust the scriptures that you've got to have an angelic presence an experience a supernaturalism a a vision a dream a miracle to somehow confirm you in that which is less than do you see the problem When you lose touch with the gospel of God, when you lose touch with the word of God, when you lose touch with Jesus' death and resurrection and what it means, then you look for something else. But whatever you look for is less than what you have lost touch with. And so they believe because of miracles. People who believe because of miracles are not Christian. They're not the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that staggering? So different to the world's view, but it's what the Bible teaches us. Now, when I call these false religions for what they are, people shoot me. They always shoot the messenger. They don't like the message. That's what you do, isn't it? And I'm very wary. We Australians don't have guns, so I'm really worried about being here. They say, oh, Philip, you're saying that because you don't believe in church. You don't go to church to worship God, so you don't believe in church. That's... I spend my life in church. I've been going to more church services than most of you know exist. I've gone week after week, three, four times on weeks on Sundays. I go to church and believe in going to church as much as any. And they say, oh, well, miracles. Well, that's because you don't believe God's at work in this world today. I say, of course he's at work. Why would I be saying my prayers if I didn't believe God could do something? Of course I believe God can heal. And in fact, no one can be healed without God healing you. But a healing miracle does not prove the gospel of Jesus to me. I believe in the gospel of Jesus with or without any healing miracle. If it comes, praise God. If it doesn't come, praise God. It's an irrelevance to my praise of God. What what Jesus says is, you must be born again. Not believe in miracles. You must be born again. And the sign of being born again is that you believe in the scriptures 
and the word of God, the gospel that the, the Holy Spirit of God has inspired as he's regenerated your heart to put your faith there. Have you been born again? It, it's not something you can do. You know, I can't tell you how to be born again. It's something God does to you. It's not something you do to God. It's not something you do to yourself. It's what God does to you. And she so says, well, I've got to be born again, and you're telling me I can't do it. So what can I do? You can pray. That's what you can do. You can ask God in his mercy to give you that which you cannot have yourself. Spiritual rebirth. So I'm going to close in prayer. And the prayer I'm going to close in a few moments is the kind of prayer you need to pray if you want God to do this great miracle. And look to him to give you that new birth which gives you confidence in God's word. The gospel of the dead and resurrected Jesus. Let's pray. Dear God, I know I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I'm guilty. Guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you and I need forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me that I may be forgiven. And thank you that he rose from the dead to give new life, rebirth by his spirit. Please forgive me and please give to me that new birth that will change me that I may live with Jesus as my king as my ruler and I ask it in Jesus name Amen